Well, it hasn't happened yet. This is Brian. <laughs> I'm CJ. This is Isaac. Uh, and today we're, we're uh, joined by a return guest, uh, my friend Sarah Zar. I don't know, Sarah, you can, you can give us a brief bio. We already gave you the, the, the plenty of uh, the whole bio or the whole intro last time. So uh, a quick intro. We don't need to hear any of the extra fancy stuff. So uh, welcome back, Sarah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a friend of Brian. I'm a, an adult child of alcoholics. Uh, I'm a semi-exvangelical. I don't know. I don't relate to that term. And I'm 50. <laughs> and a podcaster. <laughs> I mean, shout out for the podcast, right? Well, and, and Sarah, one of the things that we we kind of wanted to talk about is in your last in your last episode when you were with us, you mentioned something about how the church can be uh, slightly codependent, or it brings up these kind of codependency uh, behaviors or feelings among people and. Uh, CJ and I, because uh, Isaac, I think was, I think that was when you were hurt, uh, got hurt on the pod farm. Yeah, he was out. Yeah, I think you had the surgery, the the, the shoulder surgery. Uh, and CJ and I were like, oh, that's something we should come back to. And so that's what we're going to do today. I thought maybe it would be nice for you to kind of maybe frame the discussion for us because sure. um, you're obviously I coming at this from a different to. place. Yeah, I'm going to take, I'm going to take over. Um, no, I won't take over. Well, you did say uh, you're like, I have a lot to say. Just sit back and enjoy the conversation. Uh, <laughs> Let's see, where should I start? I guess I'll start with just kind of a definite a definition a little bit of codependence. Not there, there's no agreed upon definition of codependence. It's more of a a set of patterns. And it's a word that gets used a lot. The same way people have like, you know, made casual use of like, oh, I have PTSD from a bad trip to the grocery store or whatever. So people will make jokes about being codependent with their pets or whatever. But there's a specific pattern of thinking and behavior that makes up a sort of a codependent way of being. So let me just go through a couple. So if you look it up in the like on your computer, the first definition that's going to come up is uh, it's an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically one who requires support on account of an illness or addiction. That's very narrow, not that helpful. There's another definition that's, I believe, in my Codependence for Dummies book, which is actually a great book. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, the codependency is a pattern of painful dependence upon compulsive behaviors and approval from others to find safety, self-worth, and identity. Uh, or a codependent is a person who can't function from his or her innate self and instead organizes thinking and behavior around a substance process or other persons. The core of codependency is a lost self. And then I will also, just to give a disclaimer, I always jokingly refer to myself as an unlicensed clinical social worker (laughs) because I'm not a professional. I'm just a person with a lot of experience in this area. And I've done a ton of reading. And I come from, as I mentioned, a long history of alcoholic family system where addiction and codependence were everywhere in the family tree. And I've gone through like a 12-step recovery process around being an adult child of alcoholics. Um, so that's me. Not a, not a professional, but I, like, I feel semi-pro. I feel semi-pro. And I'm going to be curious, especially CJ, what you're going to think of all this, because I think your experience going on that mission thing, what was it called? The race? Oh, the world race. The world race. <laughs> I think that, you know, there's some relation there. But, the Amazing um, Race. CJ yeah. was on the popular <laughs> TV show, The Amazing Race. 
I do get it confused in my mind. I mean, I our podcast would probably it's... have a lot more listeners if that were the case. So we, we need oh, yeah. to tap into that audience. Quite genuinely, one of my friends didn't realize until I was like on it, like on my trip for like five months or something, he didn't realize that I wasn't doing the amazing race. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if it was like a combination of the amazing race and the world race or it was like a competitive mission trip <laughs> or if you thought you were going to be on the you thought you were going to be on the world race and you ended up on the amazing race and all of a sudden you were like I was like should I start uh, proselytizing these people um yeah um but yeah so codependence is complicated to think about in a in a christian paradigm i think because at least churches in my background, there's a, there's a lot of talk about, you know, you need to find your identity in Christ. We're putting ourselves last. We're not thinking of ourselves or thinking of others. The idea of sacrificial love, bearing one another's burdens, all of those values of a Christian community can get distorted when it tilts over into unhealthy ways of relating and thinking about yourself. So uh, the other thing that that I just want to say is like, why why does this matter? Why is this relevant to people who listen to this podcast or you guys or whatever? But I think anyone who is working in like a progressive church or ministry or mainline, whatever, you're going to have a certain number number of people migrating as they leave evangelicalism to your kind of churches. And a lot of them are going to be bringing these patterns of behavior and thoughts. And, and what we do is we look to repeat familiar patterns. And so we'll get into more specifics, but it's a lot about boundaries. It's a lot about boundaries. <laughs> yeah. I, as I'm listening, so not to blow up Isaac's spot, but um, <laughs> he, he was do it. kind of... Uh, <laughs> well, Isaac he was kind of like, I don't know make. if I... Um, agree with the conclusions. Like I'm excited to talk about this, but I'm not sure that's what churches, like I'm not sure the dynamic, that's that's what ha- happens in churches. I'm not sure that dynamic happens in churches. Is that an accurate reflection of what you were saying, Isaac, before I no. continue? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> no, uh, well, I, I would say I, no, but I, but go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry. Well, from what I heard in the text messages, which is admittedly a weird medium. <laughs> It, Isaac was not sure was not sure he was on board and I think that I was like no maybe the main line doesn't do this but I've definitely seen uh at least what you've mentioned in articles before in my evangelical experience so I'm excited to dive Well in. and pe- it's not it, it's people do it. It's not yeah, about yeah. do institutions do it some do and some encourage it and facilitate it but a certain number of people everywhere do it, no matter where they are. And if you can see that this is what's going on, it could be helpful to think about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the point that I was first struggling with Ed, when I was reading through your stuff, Sarah, wasn't like, was just that sort of thing kind of separating that claim from like people are doing this or like there's something specific about church that causes it to happen there. When what I was reading and thinking about was like, it sounds to me like this could happen in any relationship dynamic, right? Because it, it starts with those relationships. Yeah. Right. And and another thing is when you sometimes read through, if you go online or read any of the books about codependence and you read like the list of quote unquote symptoms or patterns, you just might go like, 
well, everyone does this. <laughs> this is just people. This is how people are. And to some extent, that's true, but it's more about a pervading pattern where you progressively get worse and worse in terms of losing any sense of who you are outside of a system or a relationship. So to give an extreme example, okay, I've lived in Utah for the last 20 years. So I have a bunch of Mormon and ex-Mormon LDS friends. And a thing I would hear as I had deeper friendships with people from the LDS church, a thing that would happen would be, um, they might say, oh, um, I have to, I have an appointment, I'm nervous, I have to go in and talk to the bishop and I'm going to get in trouble because news has trickled out that like I've been drinking coffee or I was at a party with alcohol. And you can laugh, but I mean, it's so serious. It's not about the substance of coffee. It's about, these are our guidelines. This is our word of wisdom. And we need something to stick to, to identify us as something different from everyone else. So so I would, my response to people who were like, I'm nervous about going in to like talk to the bishop and I'm going to get in trouble. And these are like people in their thirties. I was like, don't go. <laughs> Why would you go? Like, what's the conflict? Like, just don't, what's the consequence? Why are you? And that's coming from a place of being like from a background where I can, I don't like the way my church is doing things. Like I can go to this denomination down the street and it's like still Christian and whatever like the worship I like and the Eucharist I like, whatever. But LDS folks don't have that option. So they're trying to work within this system. And it's a lot about control and sort of leaving people in an infantilized state. But then I think you can go, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's a really extreme example. But then you can see similar things happening in evangelical churches where just even a thing that seems friendly, like getting a phone call like, oh, Sarah, I haven't seen you in church in a few weeks. Is everything okay? Like, does anyone who's gotten those phone calls feel cared for? Or does it feel like you're being controlled? Well, and okay, so there's, I I feel like we just invited Sarah on to just like argue with uh, her point. Uh, because I think, you know, I, I think that, I think that there is a, no. um, I, well, I'm hearing two different things. So I, I'll, I'll hit both of them and we can, choose to talk about one of them or none of them as it usually happens. Um, but like for me, like we, like the pastoral care model, I think that I've kind of grown up with in churches was that idea of calling just to check on people, but not necessarily with the intent of like, why haven't you been in worship? But I, I think that is true. And I, I've seen that happen in the past. And there's a joke around that. What I kind of am hearing too, though, is that people take this and even when they leave the church, right? They bring that and they put they just poured it into whatever their new um, faith system is. And you, so in the Episcopal Church, you see this with a lot of people who you were are ex-evangelicals, if that's the word you want to use. And all of a sudden, they're like they become super freaking rigid about the liturgy or about who gets to take communion. And so it's like part of what I'm hearing is that it's like you kind of also take this kind of like model of how you do faith and how you think theologically and you just move that over. And so even if you are calling yourself deconstructing, you're really not deconstructing a lot of times because you're just kind of moving it and molding it into this new system of power. I mean, thoughts on either of those? Is that, am I tracking with you on this? Yeah. And I, I, that all sounds correct to me, but I do want to back up. Wait, 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 wait. Sarah, you just said that something I said was correct. 
So I I just know, have to mark this at, uh, at 13 minutes. This is rare aesthetic. I know. <laughs> saying Brian is correct. You're right. There you um, go. Let's back up and go to like the personal, where the personal comes in. Because this is so much dependent on where people walking into a church are coming from. So using my example, I grew up with uh, my dad, a severe like critical stage alcoholic from the time. I was a kid, you know, couldn't work, was passed out a lot, never had any stretches of sobriety to of any significance. And my mom coming from her dad was an alcoholic and then she married my dad. So we had a lot of behavior in the home that was like, what can we do to control my dad and make him stop drinking? And so one of the things that my mom did was get very into our Jesus Movement Church. And the message I got as a kid was this magical thinking of if, we, if we're if we all good, if we all go to church, if we pray for dad enough and he gets saved, he's going to stop drinking. Um, so then the church, for my mom, like the church kind of became the process addiction, for lack of a better word. And then my dad, for my dad, it was alcoholism. So me, this child, now I'm a grown-up. I go into a church. Who is in the pulpit in all the churches I went to? A middle-aged man. So immediately I'm like, that guy is my new dad. (laughs) I have to agree with everything he says and thinks. And if my involvement in church gets me his approval and my non-involvement might get me his disapproval, so now I'm orienting my sense of, do I feel okay about myself? Am I okay person? Does God love me? Is my faith strong around what is my dynamic with the middle-aged man in the pulpit or other church leadership? I did it in college too with university leaders who were maybe just like two years older than me, but they were still now like my dad or any authority figure. It could be a mom, but in my background, it was always men in the pulpit. So. At a relational level, like codependency would look like, like if I was codependent with Brian, (laughs) I would wake up in the morning going, how is Brian? What does Brian think of me? Am I living up to Brian's expectations? Am I meeting his needs? Am I like getting his approval or disapproval? I know he's laughing. If Brian is okay and he says, I'm okay, then I'm okay. If he's not okay or doesn't think I'm okay, then I'm like left without anything to hold on to, to say, I'm okay. I'm like spinning out. I'm trying to read his mind so that I can behave in a certain way that will remedy this. I'm trying to manage his problems and emotions. I'm not having boundaries. It's all at the expense of my own self, my life, my needs, all of this. So what I think is getting back to the church. So you're saying that everybody has the most healthy relationship with me possible. Everybody's just really, (laughs) nobody is codependent with me. This is what you're trying to say. No, I was about to say, I'm feeling really seen by this. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's my, that's my role in the pod. Brian, <laughs> you are my dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't mean, I, I don't mean for that to come off. Like I'm not taking this seriously. I just, I, no, I don't feel that. I think you have to laugh about this stuff because it is confusing and it's complicated but where the church can feed into it and where church institutions or mission groups or college ministries, or like I I thought about this a lot when you guys, when I was listening to the youth ministry episode is 
where is that balance between like Brian was saying, pastoral care, like calling to check in with people, but not make it feel like checking up on how do you bear one another's burdens, put others before you without losing your own compass, your gut sense of right and wrong. I just saw I just saw a tweet this morning. There was an article uh, on religion news services. Uh, someone tweeted, a reporter tweeted, after repeating several stories on abuse in Christian organizations, I noticed how many victims weren't able to share their, their experiences or concerns with each other out of fear they'd be disciplined for gossiping. So, you know, where does that sense of like, I'm going to get in trouble with the authority turn into you're going against your own sense of what might be right and wrong in a situation or calling out probably more relevant is calling out behavior that's going on that shouldn't be going on because you don't want the disapproval of the authority. So I think if you come into a church with as a healthy adult who had a healthy, relatively healthy enough family system, I'm a big fan of healthy enough, healthy enough family system, you have decent boundaries, you have a decent sense of who you are. You can come into a system and be fine and not have these problems, even if for people who come in with an unhealthy background and bad boundaries and a bad sense of self could be totally made worse by the same system. One thing yeah. I'll say is for the pod that we, <laughs> you might be coming at the wrong audience, uh, or at least for us three, because one of our favorite pastimes is to take shots at bishops um, <laughs> on the pod. So, so yeah, like, and, and I think that, I mean, I, I'm kind of joking, but at the same time, I think that I wonder if there's part of that in this dynamic. But you guys aren't scared of authority. Well, I mean, I am. <laughs> that's, like an, that's an ongoing, uh, isn't that an ongoing uh, bit? It's like, whether it's the YA Twitter or the bishop not ordaining me, there, I have a lot of fear of authority. But I think that, the, I think there's a, I, I wonder if there is a, a weird com- thing in there about your religious experience or your family dynamic or whatever, giving you the tools to speak against power uh, when you feel like it's wrong or, or what you're talking about. So I, I don't know, Isaac or CJ or Sarah, if any of you kind of see a, difference in that or not. But I, it just made me kind of chuckle because we're always inviting bishops to fight in the parking lot of Chile. So it's like, <laughs> like we obviously don't have that problem. But I, I, I see, I track with what you're saying though, Sarah. So. Well, I, I mean, one question I think is interesting about this is that, you know, we're, it's kind of difficult to, to paint these things with one big brush because so many church polities are different. But like Sarah's giving us these examples from L- from the LDS church, very rigid sort of hierarchy moving up through, you know, sort of single individual uh, authority figures. But we've also seen, you know, in, in y'all's generation and, and earlier, that same sort of culture of silence in the Catholic church, which has a similar really intensely... Right rigid hierarchy. Whereas, you know, evangelical churches mainly are islands unto themselves. And at the same time, I would say in in the main line, you know, we don't have to go to this right away, but I think the dynamic is a little different because it's supposedly, quote unquote, more democratically managed to where pastors and their families kind of end up becoming codependent on like the favorability rating they have with their congregation. Yep. 
So it is, I, I think maybe some of the tension is that this codependency can kind of morph into all these different polity structures. And so you can experience it really differently, I think. Mm. Uh, Sarah, what do you... What yeah, you I mean, I think that all sounds right uh, at the thinking about the institution level things. And I think that's a great point about pastors and their families getting into that dynamic in the other way of like, I don't want to provoke the disapproval of the people who are tithing <laughs> um, or, you know, whatever the issue is, because you, once you bring money into it, yeah, you grab the mic, you're nodding. Well, I just mean like, it's like, hey, I'm living in a house that I don't own. Right. I'm If I make these people mad, I'll get moved somewhere else that I have no control over, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, yeah, it all becomes about pleasing folks for sure. Yes. And I think at the personal level, what happens is where the personal and the institutional collide or mesh or Venn diagram over whatever, many church institutions encourage their followers, congregants, to identify, to take on the church as as an identity. Mm-hmm. Not, not just like, I am a Christian, that's part of it, but like, I am this kind of Christian as an identity. And so you start to orient all your thinking and behavior around that identity. And now I'm hearing off to the side voices I grew up with going like, yeah, that's a good thing. That's the point. Our identity is in Christ and the church is the body of Christ. So like, where's the problem? (laughs) But all I know is when I started like working on this stuff and, and reckoning with my own patterns around it, that is when I started to lose my faith as I knew it because I realized my identity hasn't been in my belief in a God or in Christ. It's been in being a member of this institution in this very specific way. And if I'm not doing it and I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to be doing there and I'm not getting that approval and the pastor and I'm realizing the pastor isn't my dad and can't fix me, what am I even doing in church? And I stopped and I haven't gone back. So there's a personal connection there in my experience. And what was interesting, what you were saying, Brian, about deconstruction and people just like reconstructing around something different made me think of when I was on the podcast the first time and I um, obliquely referred to a popular deconstructing podcast. Yeah, which which we didn't we didn't take we didn't reach in grab that I didn't I didn't catch it the liturgist um, I'm just gonna put it out there and how, Friend of the and show. how I just I noticed and a lot of these these I was on a Slack group with listeners of the podcast and a lot of them are in their twenties and thirties and in a process of what they described as deconstructing and I noticed they were just re reorienting that sense of identity and belonging and being okay with the people running the podcast and the community around the podcast. And and if anyone ever disagreed with something that someone said on the podcast, a bunch of other people would come in and be like, oh, that's not what they were saying. Or like, I didn't think that. And I don't think that was such and such as intent. And just like recreating all the same dynamics that they had in their church communities that they were trying to break away from. Oh yeah. I hope our uh, listeners 
developed the exact same dependence on us. <laughs> that's, that's like a voodoo Jedi yeah. mind trick episode right here. <laughs> you hear me, little piggies? You need to defend us. Oh, no. Get no. out there on the internet and defend me. From anyone. That's actually the whole purpose of the pod. We won't get canceled because our followers will defend us. To the you're, building, you're building up a fortress of codependent oh, approval God. seekers. I guess that's, that's right. Yeah. One way. I'm curious about your mission experience and if any of this resonates. Yeah, I was listening. A lot of it does. I was getting, I was getting a little triggered. No, I was. Um, <laughs> I think that I haven't talked about this much on the pod. So for people who don't know, the World Race is an 11 month mission trip to 11 different countries. Um, I went when I was 21. It's primarily for young adults. Um, it's interdenominational, but heavily charismatic, evangelical, I would say. It's based out of um, Gainesville, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. Mm. And yeah, the interesting thing that I was, as I was listening to you and thinking about my experience is that my family system is quite healthy, honestly. <laughs> like, um, you know, my parents are great and we have a pretty healthy relationship and so I don't think I went into it with like a predisposition to some sort of like codependent family system. Uh, but the way that the world race is set up, you're on teams with five to seven other people who are all just, you know, young adults from around the country. But they set up this system called feedback where every night you like sit down and give people feedback. So it could be good, it could be bad, but it's just like saying what they saw in you that day and like what what the, what God uh, brought to their attention about you that day. And it can turn like toxic really quickly. <laughs> um, and it was like an incredibly stressful way to spend a year like sitting down every night and like having people like comment on like my behavior of the day. And you also do it, I mean, you do it to other people as well. And it's couched in like this idea that iron sharpens iron and like this is what God wants us to do in community. Um, and this is how we're going to become better missionaries. I think it did. I mean, I think it turns like an entire group of like 40 people into like extreme, like this giant codependent blob. Like I... Right, without boundaries. Yeah, there were there were no boundaries. And they actually like make a real point of that on the world race, which is like, there's no boundaries. Like you're not gonna have any boundaries with anyone. And it's great. Like you're gonna be so close to God. You're gonna be so close to your teammates. Um, and I described this to my friends later after I had like a total nervous breakdown coming back from the world race. So it was like, I... I just like didn't have any edges like anymore. I didn't know where mm. I ended and other people began. And it was actually really difficult to reintegrate into American society <laughs> just generally. And not just because of like the culture shock of like not living in America for a year, but because like it's not normal to like have that level of scrutiny about your daily life and your spiritual life and what people perceive your relationship with God to be. And I actually still have pretty weird relationships with people from the world race because of that, because they think that they have a unique insight into my spiritual life. Like I'll get, you know, after I came out in various ways, like I get text messages from people that are like expecting a level of intimacy that we simply don't have anymore. Yes. Um, anyway, I don't know that I have like a real point, except that like, 
that was a non-denominational charismatic, like extremely non-hierarchical um, organization. Like there was not a ton of oversight except for the oversight that was like built into it. Like we, it almost, it's like, like it's, it's almost like living in a surveillance state. Like it's, you're creating a cop out of everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And calling it like Christian accountability and sharing your walk, like all of that language. I mean, the whole thing of how someone in my same, you know, it's part of it's being young, being late teens, early twenties. But like you said, you went in with like a healthy background and it, it only took 11 months for you to lose yourself. And we see this in the way that in evangelical and evangelical adjacent non-denominational type Baptist, whatever churches, that encouragement of like, your business is my business because we're all, what we do affects one another. And so part of me is like, yeah, (laughs) I believe that. But there still have to be boundaries within that. Otherwise it's just, you're creating a perfect condition for abuse and loss of identity and identity matters. And I like, I don't know. I I don't know what the exact rules of fight corner are. (laughs) And all I know is I saw some tweets today about this person. I buy this person named um, Allie Beth, Allie Beth, somebody who wrote a book called you're, you're not enough and that's okay. Uh, something like... I wish we had a screenshot of like all of our pieces <laughs> as you said. <laughs> um, Allie, oh, what is her last? I sent it to Brian. Um, yeah, so she's like this conservative Christian Allie Beth Stuckey. person. I think it's... No, it's Karen. The last name is Karen. <laughs> Allie Beth Stuckey. The book is called like, You're Not Enough and That's Okay. And it's like the toxic self-love culture or something. And um, it's this perfect example. And I was reading some tweets about it where someone said, yeah, I saw the same thing at church where don't follow or trust your heart found its way into every sermon. So there's individualism slash closed system yet being stuck with a self you can't trust. And then on the flip side, making you like, you can't trust yourself. You shouldn't listen to your gut, but also everything is your fault. So where in that is the room for what CJ's talking about of having your own edges and just being like, because that's what boundaries, like recovery from codependence is working on boundaries, having a sense of self-identity and knowing who you are that's centered in you and being able to give and receive intimacy in a healthy way and to be able to give and receive friendship in a healthy way. And, um, yes. Well, I was going to say, uh, a quick glance at Allie Beth Stuckey, Stuckey, whatever, uh, Twitter, her pin tweet is since we're dismantling anything built by white supremacists, I guess it's time to get rid of Planned Parenthood. So there, there you go. That's the level <laughs> yeah, of discourse I, happening I over there. I looked at her Twitter today and just like my heart just started racing and my neck got all hot. So I think that's what we call triggered. Yeah. So. She's 
also has a podcast, relatable, and it looks like it might have a big viewership. So maybe it's a time to start a little Twitter war. We can get uh, we can get some get some uh, for clout. Yeah, just for clout, just to start. Well, I mean, so welcome. All right, all right, it's time, Twitter soldiers, cancel yourself to defend the pot. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about boundaries and what CJ was just describing and how churches can exacerbate that problem, I guess. Because it does show up in these ideas of quote-unquote accountability. I think about the promise keepers of the 90s where it's just like dudes are going to tell their dude friends every website they looked at that day. that you have to justify every purchase, every decision. I mean, some churches take it to that level. And that idea that someone in your ministry group can come, can kind of come up to you and have this feeling like it's okay for them to be like, how's your walk? Which maybe that's fine for some people to ask. Um, it's ultimately though, it's ultimately disingenuous because what it ends up doing, sorry, Sarah, to cut you off, but like for like the porn aspect of it, right? There's something I never thought I'd say in this, this podcast, but the porn aspect of it though is like, I, I saw a tweet once where somebody said they had to, they kept track of how many times they admitted to looking at porn because they didn't want people to know ex- actually how much they looked at porn in an evangelical kind of accountability group. And so it actually doesn't it doesn't actually serve in any way like it's supposed to. It doesn't to. produce more intimacy. No, and it doesn't produce so any kind a, of accountability because you're just you're you know what you know what the outcome is gonna be, right? Like you yeah. know what you're gonna get from that. It's a fear-based control system, but it's easy to fall into. I think it's easy to be like those people do that, but it's just it's really easy to fall into when you're in because ideally, like the idea of Christian community that I grew up with that we read about in Paul's letters, you know, it's just like, you're sharing everything. You're taking care of people. You're bearing one another's burdens. Um, You're putting others' needs before you. All of that, like, in a healthy system, I think those values can really work and create a great community. But it gets so easily distorted by the control and the bureaucracy and the authoritarianism that can happen. So like a healthy boundary, well, let's just look at like student honor codes. Just take as an example, like Christian colleges. So like- Oh yeah, there's some uh, friends of the pod who are familiar with this dynamic, but yeah, so please go ahead. Yes, well, just to come, like what's a healthy boundary and what's like not, you know? So like a healthy boundary that's not about control would be like, here's a code, like, no plagiarizing, no stealing, like no going into someone else's dorm room without permission. Like those are reasonable, healthy codes of conduct. What's not healthy is like, you can't be gay. (laughs) You can't be who you are. Don't be sad. (laughs) Don't, you know, just like whatever, like the thing is that the group has decided to focus on you can see like that's an invasion of boundaries versus boundaries that are healthy and helping everyone live together in community are good things. But things that are like going into your person and saying, don't be that is an unhealthy boundary. But people who are codependent and haven't worked on their boundaries, let that come in and let it fuck with them. 
And so a big part of my recovery was just like, I'm me, you're you. I can decide what I let in about me and I can say no. Um, And I look at even the way like we prayed for each other in small groups, praying with a purpose of like where the end results, where you have a desired end goal of the prayer, right? Like, Lord, I just really pray that Brian can work on his pride. And, you know, um, maybe then he'll have healthier relationships with everyone. <laughs> like that's, that's not a good prayer. That's not how we should be praying for other people. You're, you know, looking for the institution to set the boundaries for you instead of setting them yourself. Another thing, and then maybe this will be the last thing I say, because I've talked a lot. <laughs> well, this is the first podcast where we've had a legit... Uh outline. It just was brought to us by, by the guests. So, oh, I mean, the second, we actually had this, the second one uh, that had the second Chris was, to bring an outline. Oh, I know. I was going to say, you know, talking about that, what the example has given at the beginning of people coming from like an LDS background and how people bring their patterns with them. So people would come, there'd be people who had like left the LDS church and come to the church I was going to in Salt Lake. And they would immediately be looking for the norms and the rules that they were supposed to adhere to, to be accepted. And like trying to always meet with the pastor and get his opinion on everything. So like the church I was a part of would be like, Oh no, you don't have to do that. Like we don't, we don't have all those rules, but we did, (laughs) we had other rules, you know, but it's like, there's a version of that that can help that can happen in any system. Oh, I know I was going to say like the last thing is something I learned in 12 step groups that I wished all my small groups at church would do, which is the rule about no crosstalk in a 12-step group, which if people aren't familiar, it just means like when we're in a group and I'm sharing something about my life and experiences, no one else can respond with advice. Uh, If you didn't ask for advice, they can't respond with advice. They're not supposed to respond with like, oh yeah, that happened to me. And, you know, until the person is like, I'm done. And these were things, and no one's supposed to interrupt, obviously. Uh, These were things I saw repeatedly happen in group dynamics in church, where it was like constant unsolicited advice, uh, interruption, making things about other people. Again, these are like people problems. I'm not saying these are institutional problems, but in church groups where there's a value of intimacy and community and you are going to be like meeting with people and having intimate conversations and sharing in a personal way, if that's a thing that happens at your church, these are things to be aware of. But because we're, we see ourselves like CJ's mission group, where it's like, we're just one blob of people on this joint mission. It all just gets very fuzzy. So people think they can like, well, I wouldn't give this advice at my workplace, but we're in church small groups. So I'm going to say you should do X, Y, Z. Um, sounds anyway, like sounds like the podcast. I'm, I'm feeling very convicted or judged, attacked something. <laughs> well, there, there's one dynamic to this that I do want to point out because we, we've talked about like, oh yeah, like all the intimate details that, that people will probe into in these small groups. And yet at the same time, the public face that they give to you were talking about like the, um, you know, the example of the student honor code. We're seeing this, you know, all during the pandemic. Like 
you can't force me to get vaccinated. You can't force me to wear a mask. You can't all under the grounds of that's an intrusion into my private choice and my private life. So like, don't tell me what to do. Like, I think a lot of these dynamics are the public face of it is like, um, trying to put up these like giant walls between what the government can tell you to do and like, you know, versus these people that you go to church with who are like, praying for you to stop looking at porn or whatever, like praying for you to like do the, you know, I don't know, like the most intimate crap about you, but the government or the larger community can't make any requests of you that are healthy, like getting vaccinated before you go to college or before you go to school or wearing a mask when you're in a restaurant. Mm. Like there are so many videos. I saw one this past week of, you know, this woman refusing to put on a mask and she says specifically, I am a Christian woman and like you will not tell me what to do because I've been given these like inalienable rights by God and you cannot oppress me. And so I there's this sort of double work that that does that um that closes off the system even more. Yeah, I, any of these things can be used in unhealthy ways. There, there's a lot of. I'm a big fan of reality TV, and I love episodes, old episodes of America's Next Top Model. And it's just kind of the perfect. Like people are sharing, you know, they're having to live in a house together and share space and share a kitchen and all that. And it's just like you, like I'm, I'm me, like I'm a sovereign being. If I'm not, if I don't want to rinse my dish, you're not my mother. You can't tell me to rinse my dish. Whatever. It's just it's a very simple example. Like, well, you're, we're sharing, we're trying to have a society, you know, we're, we're sharing a world here and we're trying to do collectively what's best for everyone. But that doesn't include you telling me what I'm allowed to think about, you know, inside my head about my own identity or whatever. Um, but you, any, and we've seen this happen a lot over the last few years where the right is taking the language of the left and you know, using like the say her name hashtag about the woman who was killed at the Capitol riots. They co-opted fake news right away, that term. Mm. So you will always see that. Like I'm, well, I'm just having boundaries. This is like my personal boundary you can't invade. So I don't know. I have no answers. I just, I'm more interested in the personal in a lot of ways because that's where I found it most affecting me. But I do know that once I went through a process of recovery from codependent thoughts and patterns and like reckoning with my childhood. I, I got, I was so felt so much more free to just love people as they are and not try and control or worry about their behavior, their choices um, versus being raised. Another thing I didn't even touch on, well, it's connected to the missions thing of being Learning in Sunday school as a small child, it was my job to witness to my friends and tell them about the gospel. And it was like, not just my, it's like my responsibility because if I don't tell them, like, how are they going to know? And then they might go to hell and then it's my fault. Um, So that from a very early age, you're just like, you are responsible for other people's souls in this way. And like I said at the beginning, like, it's complicated because part of me is like, yeah, I'm responsible for the well-being of others. But like now that I'm past the codependent religious stage of all that and expression of that, I see it as the way that I can 
be responsible for everybody is or love everyone is like what you're saying, like do participate in society and community, do what's best for the collective, listen to science, accept people where they are and not have standards of like, you have to meet, you have to meet these three things before I'm allowed to love you and see you as a person bearing the image of God. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, it does get complicated. There are a couple, one other thing that I specifically wanted to ask, but just, just kind of put a bow on the uh, sort of dynamic at a lot of these evangelical colleges that, you know, where you're not allowed to dance or you're not allowed to have a rated R movie or you're not allowed to go on like a date is that they're all major feeding programs for the FBI, the CIA, NSA, like Liberty has an FBI college hiring initiative. There's this place called Patrick Henry College, which is called like, Wolf. Yeah, that is like <laughs> um, funneling students into, um, you know, national security roles all over the government. The Mormons are a huge recruiting field for the FBI and the CIA. I can see that. So um, I don't even know if this is true, but it tracks with everything else that you say, Isaac. So I'm just going to believe it. Like this is this is like <laughs> a, a perfect take for you. So keep going. I love this. This is not this is not a take. I'm like talking about some great reporting on this. There's a great book um called God's Harvard about Patrick Henry College and the like role it played in the George Thanks. W. Bush White House. Um wow. so yeah, just just Google some of this stuff. Google Liberty and the FBI. I mean, th- these things are not happening in a vacuum. Uh like there are political interests that are are taking advantage of these dynamics because they mm-hmm. see them as um, producing helpful or useful individuals for the national project. And, and that's part of what I wanted to ask you, Sarah. My brother died of alcoholism in 2017. Oh, wow. At the age of 39. Oh, man. One of the things that you talk about in some of your... Is it Substack? I almost said Slack. Uh Medium, medium, Substack. Yeah. I don't know. And Substack is bad, so I'm trying to figure out how not to use them. Anyway, <laughs> go on. But you know, one of the things you talk about is like the effect of sort of the these spiritual hopes that you had for you know Jesus stopping your dad from being an alcoholic just were kind of reinforcing or born out of this feeling of helplessness. And you know, my brother died without health insurance, without a an affordable way to seek treatment and and all this stuff and I think that you know one of the things that I related to in that in in your writing is like no one was in denial about him being an alcoholic it was just that no one felt like we had anything available to us to do something about it and I I think that part of what I've been reflecting on you know CJ kind of references at the beginning like some of the hesitation I had coming into this conversation was trying to name some of the political reasons for why that is the case. I mean, especially in evangelical churches where historically it's been more poor white folks attending those as opposed to the mainline. And, you know, really just thinking that like, we know over the last 150 years, for sure, we've talked about this in with various guests on the pod, like Stephen Martin and Kevin Rose, going back to all the way to episode three, like... There have been evangelical pastors and groups who've been saying, like, 
we need to evangelize the poor or they will be radicalized. And part of it is, I think, to keep people in this constant state of helplessness because they, because the reality is we don't have a social safety net that can give people tools to manage things like addiction in you know, mental health, just basic having food on the table, those sort of things. I mean, and I didn't know if um, you relate to that and in seeing like, okay, maybe this, maybe it's not just about like, I don't know, I guess I'm just saying like, it's, it's helpful for people, mainly rich people, for uh, people with addiction or these other problems to feel like religion is providing them with something because what are the alternatives? I definitely know that in my experience with my dad and we were poor um, also was that feeling of being overwhelmed because there weren't, there didn't seem to be practical solutions that were available in a way that was just like easily accessible or understood. And so in the face of that overwhelming sense of overwhelm and living in survival mode, it was a greater comfort to be like, well, how Lindsay says Jesus is coming back in a couple of years. So, you know, all our problems will be solved. Then to be like, how do I figure out how to get healthcare on my salary as a part-time church secretary? So yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And it's, I think it's also, I see that's, that's really fascinating too, because you know, Sarah and I have talked about this just between us before, but we have a fairly similar background as far as like uh, growing up economically, growing up. And like, to me, like the church became the avenue for me to like be angry about that stuff and to have words to kind of be like, well, no, fuck this. This isn't how this is supposed to work. So it is, it's interesting to hear that. Um, and I also think it's, if people are interested in this, it might be worth re-listening to the podcast with Stephen Martin and talking about um, uh, Mark Tooley. That was that, that dude's name and about how like shifting. So, so mainline denominations aren't talking and taking care of this, but shifting that conversation to things like LGBTQ inclusion or marriage and stuff like that. So uh, this might be worth re-listening to if you haven't heard that one. Uh, shout out to Mark Tooley, friend of the show. And one thing we didn't talk about, which we don't need to get into because it's a whole other complicated thing, but anytime you're talking about addiction in a family, especially for members of that family, there's a whole bunch of shame that happens. And the church has not been great about helping people deal with shame uh, and can just exacerbate feelings of shame. And I think that's true for any church of any (laughs) political stripe. It's just because as humans, we're we're not good at reckoning with shame and talking about it. Um, And so if you go into everything feeling like you're bad, your family is bad, and something is happening that you can't control, and somehow it's probably your fault, and therefore the approval of a system becomes even more important to make you feel okay, to cover up the shame, that's all going to play into how people are in a church community. And I think that one of the through lines in all of this in these small groups, in the, you know, this codependent model, right, is the total absence of conflict, like always mm, trying yes. to yes. eliminate. Thank you. I didn't say that 100%. This is the most important thing. I can't believe we forgot to talk about it. I think it's important to, to name that because I, again, like, I think my, some of my initial fear about this stuff is that I think sometimes 
we can fall into this thing of like, oh man, community just sucks. And like, it's better to just kind of go it alone. And I, I see a lot of young people doing that who are like really not connected to any larger body and the, the like different feelings of helplessness that that can create. But you know, when you're trying to, when we're like trying to say like, oh, as Christians, like it's normal to talk about like, whether or not you struggle with porn addiction, but it's not normal to say, let's collectively fight the system for right. a higher minimum wage or universal health care. And it's because that necess- that inherently involves conflict yes. with power. And, and so it's not, it has no place in the church. CJ, go. Well, and I just, um, maybe this is out of left field. I just, I think that also part of that has to do with how uh, the American church, especially American evangelicals historically talk about sin and how, uh, I mean, like, I think fundamentally conflict is seen as a sin in Mm -hmm. evangelical churches, which has a lot to do with dependency and codependent dynamics, but also, you know, like this, uh, Reinhold Nyberg talks about this in his critique of Billy Graham. There's no... There is no understanding of sin in American evangelicalism that is outside of the individual. And so if you can't talk about sin on a systemic level, then it's going, and your worldview is being shaped by an institution that has no way to acknowledge institutional sin, then it's going and and sees all conflict as ultimately as, as a sin because it's caused by gossip or it's caused by hardness of heart. Then there's... Like that's political, but there's also, there's no way to form a a body politic out of that community, um, which I've just been thinking about as we talk. And I think that's an important dynamic here is that there's a real like dearth of sin talk in Mm -hmm. Christianity that can um, intersect with like a political praxis. Well, and it's ironic because we talk a lot in, uh, in the churches I grew up in about, you know, we would do like, Prayers of, I haven't been in church so long, I forget what it's called. Confession. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Glad we had you on. (laughs) Corporate, we talk about corporate prayers and corporate prayers of confession and then, you know, getting the corporate assurance of forgiveness and corporate this and group that and community that. But when it comes to sin, like you said, CJ, there's no talk about the collective or corporate sins. And thank you again, Isaac, for bringing this up because it is that avoidance of conflict and that conflict is always bad and conflict is always a sign that the family's breaking up is a interpersonal and intrapersonal dynamic that people bring into a church community that is a lot influenced by childhood experience. And for really dysfunctional homes, people coming from those backgrounds, contentious divorce, all of that, any sign of a fight is just going to... People get nervous, they step back, they get uncomfortable, they're on edge, um, they don't want to touch it, they want church to be a nice place they can go and feel nice and feel good and feel uplifted. But then you're leaving like several elephants in the room that are not being dealt with that need to for like the church to actually function as the body of Christ in the world. It you know when we think about like the collective nature of of justice work or whatever else that people 
in progressive spaces want to get into, one of the things we'll have to like get over and get used to is sustained conflict. Like that's what it's going to take to... And feeling disapproved of. Yes, yes, yeah. And that's what it's going to take to dismantle this like system of policing. That's what it's going to take to win any sort of sense of social safety net. And we're we're so ingrained in us that like, I don't know, I just see like this movement from young progressives who have kind of come out of the evangelical church going into the Episcopal church or whatever else and thinking like, oh, here are like better versions of accountability groups because it's from the Reformation instead of from like (laughs) Billy Graham. And, you know, just church is about like coming together to help, you know, bring the kingdom, like a different form of public community into reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's way more natural to fight with your neighbor for real, actual political goals than it is to like talk to them about not touching themselves. I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's my final thing. But it's just not an accident that that's where we are. Like there are people who've benefited from it and wanted to continue. So, well, we are coming up on an hour and gotten real deep today, <laughs> and. I've been kind of, and I have a fight corner. Are we ready for the fight corner? Bring it. Yeah. Let's bring this back up to the normal level. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I've been going, I've been coming in hot against bishops and famous Christian figures recently. So I'm taking a break this week and I don't know, Isaac, you might want to get in on this one too, but in this week's fight corner, I would like to welcome. I would like to invite JD Vance to come fight oh, me no. in the Chili's oh parking God. lot. Oh, no. <laughs> we've take... mentioned him on the pod oh, before, God. but I want to make it formal that I would like to cage fight JD Vance. <laughs> I have to bring the cage the cage into the parking lot. I, that I, works. I'm having to look this person up. This is an American author and venture capitalist. Hillbilly yes. Elegy. Yes. Oh, Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, you know him. He is. You know so him. He is famously <laughs> the author of Hillbilly Elegy and ostensible expert on. The crisis of rural masculinity, white working class, moral decay, <laughs> also like general Appalachia expert. I don't think he's an expert on anything. But if you've heard of him, it's probably because you've read his memoir, which is bad. Um, or you may have recently heard that he's going to run for Senate in Ohio. And so I would just like to say to all the liberals who have still been fucking dialoguing with him for the past five years that this is what happens when you dialogue with white supremacists. They start running for office. Oh, makes me so mad. Also, if you think he's... if you, I, I'm coming in relatively new to him because I never read Hillbilly Elegy, but if you think he's like all about rural middle America. He basically was a venture capitalist in San Francisco for a long time. So, And also he's from like outside of Columbus, Ohio, which newsflash for Ohio, you suck. But also that's not <laughs> Appalachia. Sorry. Yes. Well, welcome to, welcome to the <laughs> Chili's parking lot, J.D. Vance, because I'm ready to fight. And presumably Ohio too. CJ, what if Peter Thiel shows up? I'll fight him too. I will take turns. I will fight him too. Uh, So the thing about J.D. Vance, A, he's not even from fucking Appalachia and anyone from Appalachia will tell you that. Uh, As my my mom likes to make that point all the time. Uh, B, I just, I think I get real mad about it because J.D. Vance and I have the exact same relationship to 
Appalachia, which is that our grandparents lived there and we visited them a lot in the summers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I would also like to add that I actually lived in Appalachia for a while, unlike J.D. Vance, who has never lived in the counties of Appalachia. Also, if as we're talking about the region, uh, like Appalachia is a political designation that is rooted in um, like a lot of like politics of like the 1930s and 40s. Um, and so when you're talking about Appalachia, it's like, it's a class thing, it's a race thing. But generally when J.D. Vance is like uh, conceptualizing Appalachia, he's talking about a white working class that has been ravaged by the opioid epidemic and that has been left behind economically because there's no more coal and there's no more manufacturing jobs. And uh, all the people that are left there are just no good layabouts who can't pick themselves up by their bootstraps, basically. Like this is his whole memoir, uh, which he sells his entire family up the river in his memoir, by the way. And if I did that, to my grandparents or my mom, the entire population of Southwest Virginia would kick my ass. And I sincerely hope that if you see, if you live in Ohio and you see J.D. Vance, you fist fight him on site because that man does not deserve public respect. But I get real, I get real triggered. I get real, I get real up in arms uh, because he made his, uh, he made his reputation on this idea that, uh, the white working class and white masculinity has become so degraded by just by like nothing, just because like we're just because they they're bad, like they because poor people are bad because your economic status relates to like your moral uprightness in America, and that's not a new idea, but that's this whole thing, you know. Like, sorry, and he's I, not poor, and it's never been poor. And he's like legit yeah. racist all the time on Twitter. I mean, like yeah, I just defended Tucker yep. Carlson recently, and yes. and he said it's, Sorry, it's now it? apparently racist. I, I lost steam in the middle of that, but the, like the other part of this is that he is straight up a white supremacist, and yeah. he uses his Indian wife and like uh, half Indian children as shields for his white supremacy all the time. But he's like super worried about like white birth rates, which yeah. is a huge dog whistle. Yeah, if JD anyone's if, if anyone's on TikTok and interested in more of the Appalachian history. There's this young woman named Danielle Kirk who's on TikTok doing a lot of videos about that who is yeah. knows what I, she's talking about. And I'm sorry, I should have made an outline because I get up in arms and then I get inarticulate because of how mad he makes me. But <laughs> the thing that he's doing in Appalachia talking about the white working class is really frustrating because uh, Appalachian labor movements are like famous for like mm-hmm. fighting the governments, right? Like uh, coal mines were part of like a huge labor movement in the U.S. that uh, resulted in, like, really strong unions for, like, decades. Um, And the National Guard was deployed to fight striking miners. I mean, Pinkertons were out here murdering miners because they wouldn't work, you know, 12 to 16-hour days in extremely, like, life-threatening conditions. There's entire movies about the Matewan Massacre where the government killed its own citizens because they wouldn't work in the coal mines. Great Um, John Sayles movie, Matewan. There's also a really good novel called Storming Heaven by Denise Giardina, who is a West Virginia writer that I would recommend if you are interested in novels about labor movements. But I mean, there's an entire history of uh, like labor politics in Appalachia that he completely ignores in it, like it just 
in in order to make himself feel better about <laughs> in order to make himself feel better about having uh, family members who struggle with drug addiction and family members who are not the same class status as him, and it really frustrates me. Like if you're going to write a memoir, like about your own issues, write a memoir about your own issues. Don't bring everybody else into it. <laughs> well, I think that it just goes back to he wants to sell this like narrative of helplessness when act, the actual history is a history of res- resistance, collective struggle. And by the way, Appalachia is not exclusively white. So JD There's Vance, an excellent podcast called Black in Appalachia that's actually yeah. out of Knoxville that's, yeah. uh, that's very good about that if you want to hear about that. Yeah, JD Vance, I will sick 30 to 50 feral hogs on your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that was a bit of a long fight corner. He gets me real mad, but uh, don't, if you live in Ohio, do not vote for JD Vance under any circumstances and yell at him at every single public opportunity that you have. Even if it wins you the disapproval of your friends and family. <laughs> yes. Uh, not a, and I will add that not a single Appalachian I know likes JD Vance. Yeah. <laughs> there, if you are genuinely interested in a more coherent um, argument against his book, or then there's a book by Elizabeth Cat. Yes. Called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia that uh, really cogently and quickly refutes his entire project. So I will yeah, leave it Elizabeth at that. Elizabeth Cat is awesome. Come on the pod, Elizabeth Cat. Well, Please. on that note, well, <laughs> uh, Sarah, is there anything that you, wanna, that you want to... Uh, what's the word I'm looking oh. for? No, I, I, I'm not... Yeah, plug, God. Now I'm the, I'm the one who's got the 50-year-old brain... Oh, God. Anything that you, you want to plug, Sarah? My, I remember when I was on last time, I was like, have me back to talk about codependence and religion. And um, <laughs> thank you for allowing me to do that, even in the face of Isaac's objections. <laughs> Full-throated, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, I did not I mention it. I back for that one, yeah. CJ. <laughs> Sorry. Next guest becomes on like, so CJ hated your stuff. <laughs> oh, oh, no, well... Their next no, guest no, I will not believe that. Yeah, I didn't feel that at all. I totally went. Brian was like, Isaac is not really sure like what you're talking about. I was like, <laughs> that's fair. It's not a vocabulary that everyone is like as invested in as I am, and it's not a paradigm that everyone like latches onto. Um, I'll just say some suggested reading. Like I said at the beginning, the codependency for dummies book is actually really well done and really comprehensive. Um, Great work by this woman named Tian Dayton on specifically being children of adult, adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional family systems. Yeah. And if you want to know more, you can always just find my website and email me. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I think all takes have been revealed. <laughs> yes. Indeed. <laughs>